1: this is start making sense the weekly podcast of the nation magazine and i'm john Weiner. we're still thinking about barbara Ehrenreich. she died last week she was 81 and she was one of our best she transformed social justice journalism writing 20 books including nickel and dimed Her undercover report about trying to survive on low-wage work, it changed the lives of millions of readers and helped launch a new movement for a higher minimum wage. She also wrote dozens of pieces for The Nation. We spoke with her regularly when her new books came out, starting in 2002, when we spoke with her on KPFK in Los Angeles about nickel and dimed. Barbara Ehrenreich, the question you take up is, how does anyone live today on the wages available to unskilled workers? And the answer that you come up with briefly is that it's almost impossible. What were the rules you set for yourself in the beginning?
2: Well, my initial rules were that I had to um, find the cheapest place I could to live in, but consistent with living indoors and, you know, some (laughs) degree of uh, safety. Okay. Um, That was that kind of rule got violated a little bit at certain times and then i had to take the best paying job i could get and my third rule was i had to try you know i had to work hard and you know try my best and not get fired for some silly reason
1: so the first job you got was uh waitressing close to home in key west Uh, tell us what the what the work was like and what the money was like
2: well uh, I think any a lot of people probably listening have served in restaurants uh, at some point in their lives. I, I had done so when I was a teenager and in college. Me too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know what it's like. It's, um, it's pretty exhausting work. You're always on your feet. You're running a lot of the time. And even if the place isn't full of customers, you've got all your side work to keep up with. But I, I knew that to begin with. Wages are pathetic. Um, wages are... Two dollars and change an hour.
1: Wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute.
2: $2? Two dollars. Two dollars and um, in one place it was fifteen cents an hour. I uh, what,
1: what what about wait a minute? What about the minimum wage loss? It doesn't loss? apply. How, does
2: uh, servers are tipped. Ah. Uh, so you're you it's that's you know that's where your money comes from. I, I hope everybody realizes this. The tipping isn't optional for the server, uh, at least from the server's perspective. Uh, because you absolutely have to get—you have to get that to, you know, even get up to the minimum wage.
1: So, how much were you able to make with tips working as a waitress in Kiwi? Well,
2: I—I I was in some pretty, um, let's see, dismal places, uh, and I'm not young enough to get the really good jobs. You have to be uh, young and attractive to get the really high tip jobs, and I'm, I'm not experienced. You know, I—my experience is decades out of date. So I got uh, not great jobs in places with um, one place was very slow. There wasn't enough business, so I left that job, went to another, uh, which was higher volume, but the tips were still awfully low, averaging around 10%. So, uh, you know, I've made, I average 7 750 an hour somewhere in there as a waitress.
1: Did your co-workers um, have any secret economies, any tricks to making this this kind of uh, money uh, last longer that, that middle-class people don't know about?
2: Well, no. <laughs> you know, I sort of thought, maybe I'll find out. Maybe there's some secret to this that I can't guess, yeah. unless I get out there and do it. Uh, but... No, I found, well, you know, there are the strategies you can imagine. Uh, you know, the most common one is that you have to have more than one low-wage earner in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can mean grown children or even teenage children as well as a spouse, something like that. So you try to patch it together that way. Another strategy is um, taking more than one job. Uh, and I did try that, too, Um and I have to admit, I could not do two demand, you know, physically demanding jobs in one day. Uh, I was warned <laughs> that it would. I was warned by um, a manager that it would be impossible, and uh, she was right. But a lot of people uh, do, you know, combine usually a job and a half, eight hours and six hours, or something like that. Very, very difficult. But I also found that a lot of people you know, that I was working alongside weren't really quite making it. At least a couple of people turned out to be actually homeless. Although I wouldn't have guessed it because I just, you know, have stereotypes in my mind of how homeless people should look and these people look fine and they, you know, you can find places to shower uh, very often, public places, and come to work clean. But the odd thing was that these people didn't consider themselves homeless because as long as you have a car or I mean, or a van or something to sleep in, uh, that's not really considered absolutely homeless.
1: When you applied for these jobs as waitress or later a hotel housekeeper, wasn't it obvious that you were a middle-class, educated uh, intellectual?
2: I, I guess I thought, too, that there was a danger that I would be, uh, you know, that I might stand out and uh, in some way. But no. Never. The only way I stood out Never. in every job was that I was the least you know, always the new person and had a lot to learn. I had to sort of I kind of minimize my uh experience in education a little bit on application forms. I didn't put down that I have a PhD. Uh, I didn't think that would help me catch off because <laughs> you know, they think what's wrong with her? you know yeah. and I I I described myself as a divorced homemaker re entering the workforce after several years. And that's true as far as it goes, right? Now, I'm a freelance writer. It's not the same as having jobs. <laughs> um,
1: and, and what was the state of uh, sort of uh, class solidarity and class conflict on the job start, starting in Key West?
2: Almost everybody I worked alongside with worked really hard and really put their hearts into their, their work. and took a lot of pride in, in doing a good job. On the other side of it, though, was that um, management tended not to respect uh, the amount of work and effort uh, they were getting uh, from from people, Uh, and um, I was I was astounded really at how badly uh, people are treated. Um,
1: What do you you mean badly treated? Well,
2: first, for one thing, you have no privacy in in uh, the low wage workplace, and actually, a lot of medium wage workplaces too these days, uh, you know, from the beginning when you just have to go through a drug test and uh, a personality test uh, to get the job. I mean, I think those things are invasions of privacy. On my one of my very first days at, at work and one of these waitressing jobs, and this applies to all the other places too, I was warned that my purse could be searched at any time by management. And you know, I couldn't believe it. But that's true. Management has the right to search your purse or your backpack or whatever if it's on his property. You are subject to all kinds of ridiculous rules, rules like no gossiping, <laughs> or in, at Walmart it was no talking. <laughs> wow. I mean, you could, of course, you could talk to other people just if it was about the work in a, in a very brief way, but you were not ever to chat with a fellow worker, even if there was no, you know, urgent thing to do at that moment. So you had to sneak to do that. Or rules like um, no eating or drinking anything, which um, was really an unhealthy kind of rule at one place I I worked, which was a house cleaning service, and we could be cleaning one giant house for four hours and be... um, you know, not allowed to have a bite of anything or a sip of water during that time.
1: Then there uh, were also the rules about going to the bathroom.
2: Well, well, I thought that there would be breaks <laughs> everywhere. I thought breaks were a right, but no, um, there is. Um, OSHA says you have the right to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion, but that's not something that is enforced um, very uh, energetically. Sometimes you have to sneak to take a leak.
1: Now it's time for your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Uh, Barbara, you moved to Minneapolis where people are nice and where wages are high. Uh, you applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, what happened then?
2: Well, let me say, it's not that easy to get a job at Walmart. <laughs> uh, you, there, there's the, quite a, a tricky person, uh, personality test you have to get through. And uh, I was told before I took it, you know, don't worry, there are no right or wrong answers, just whatever you think. Well, then the uh, personnel manager came back from the computer where she graded my personality and said, uh, I had some answers wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what was wrong with your personality from Walmart's well, point see, of view?
2: My strategy with these, these tests was to give the obvious right answer. You know, it's usually pretty... An- obvious. You know, if, it's, if the proposition in the in the test is, I have stolen the following amount, check dollar amount below, <laughs> of goods from my employers in the last year. I see what you mean. You know, it's going to be zero. <laughs> yeah. Or if the, the another uh, test proposition you often run into is, it's it's always better to work when you're a little bit high.
1: Mm, that's, not, a tough, <laughs> not. that's a tough one to know the right answer yeah.
2: to. But the one that I got, one of the ones I got wrong, and I don't remember the um, other's quite so exactly, you have to follow all rules to the letter at all times, Uh, agree, and how do you agree strongly, and you know, very strongly, up to totally strongly, and I put, um, I think I put very strongly, because I thought, you know, if I put, went too, was too blatant, they'd think I was faking out the test but no the correct answer was totally <laughs> <laughs> very um,
1: strongly is the wrong answer to the question how, how strongly do you believe in obeying the rules
2: yeah and you see, I didn't want to look like too much of a suck-up but you can big never mistake. be too much of a suck-up <laughs>
1: big mistake nevertheless you got this job at Walmart now uh, you say you made mistakes in Minnesota what were your mistakes
2: I think I could have possibly gotten a better paying job and was offered what appeared to be a better paying job by another big box store. But the thing that kind of really scared me about it was it was an eleven hour shift. Now that has to be illegal. Uh and I and I said, How can this be? And they said, Well do you want the job or not? You yeah. want to work full time or not? Maybe I should have taken that one and just tried to keep on my feet. For 11 hours at a time. I don't think I could have done it, though.
1: So instead, you took the Walmart job and you went to the Walmart orientation. I must say, this was, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of your book.
2: Yes. Well, you know, Walmart is more than a corporation, it's a cult. Uh, (laughs) Okay. It it takes uh, an eight hour orientation, no matter how lowly your job. You know, people, greeters, everybody go through this orientation. Uh, this went stretch from 3 p.m. till al- almost 11 p.m. And one of the most interesting things to me about it, in addition to the cult-like things, you know, the many speeches from Sam Walton on video, on video um, who is dead, um, <laughs> was uh, a 12-minute um, video uh, warning us about unions.
1: Oh yes. So yeah. and and what what do they tell you is is uh, the union situation at Walmart?
2: Well, they, they said there's a danger that unions are often trying to uh, get a foothold at Walmart, and that we had to watch out for that, because unions would take away our rights, not that we had any, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and would, of course, charge ridiculously high dues and so on. It was very frustrating to sit through, because, of course, there was no rebuttal, no alternative viewpoint presented
1: and and uh, after uh, going through the eight-hour Walmart orientation, Barbara Ehrenreich, at last you went to work, and you uh, sold the the famous Kathy Lee collection.
2: Yes, well, I at first was quite thrilled to be in ladies' wear, thinking I would be in a position to give, be giving fashion tips to <laughs> Midwesterners who would se- use some fashion tips. <laughs> Actually, turned out to be one of the hardest jobs in the store because. Women try on clothes, and in Walmart, they try them on by the shopping cart full.
1: The shopping cart full?
2: Oh, yeah, you shop with a shopping cart, even in the clothing departments there. And my job uh, was to put everything back in its exact place. Uh The things people had tried on, as well as things they had tossed on the floor or uh, secreted in the wrong parts of the department. And this was very mentally taxing uh... john the one, i never call any job unskilled anymore uh... to learn where everything went and then just when i had that all memorized and i knew the the whole map of ladies wear and all the different clothing lines in it you know kathy lee jordash faded glory white stag et cetera et cetera uh... the manager would change the whole thing huh. because they you know they just do that in uh, retail
1: one last question you took these jobs under a bit of a false pretense. Um, did you ever come out to, to any of your coworkers? And And if so, what was their response to finding out that really you were a middle-class writer on assignment? Uh,
2: well, yes, I, that deception weighed heavily on me, and I was always very anxious before coming out to, you know, someone, um, you know, you, or a few people who I knew especially well, at the end of my career in a particular job, and I didn't know what response to it get. I would get, but what I got was quite surprising. Was people were really underwhelmed when I'd say, "You know, I'm really a writer." <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's a writer. Uh, uh-huh. Anybody who's literate is a writer. Mm-hmm. And I did run into people who were writing poems or a journal or even a book. In one case, uh, you know. We have a lot of, you know, maybe assumptions about low-wage people that are really wrong. And it didn't change their image, I think, that much of me as a waitress or a house cleaner.
1: Barbara Ehrenreich's classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, started out as an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1999 and became a best-selling book in 2002. That's when we recorded this interview.